You are listening to Intersections with Phil Allen Jr., engaging the issues that matter at the intersection of race, culture, and theology. There are some people who you just know are uniquely gifted and called for the task, the job, uh, the challenge that they've decided to take on in their lives. This reminds me of my guest this week, a man by the name of John Williams. He's an educator, a spirit-led disruptor. He challenges and equips the church to understand the dynamics of racism and how to resist, respond, and build the community we need, the community we all desire. I invite you to listen in as we engage the topic of racism in the move towards justice, solidarity, and reconciliation. So we have with us today on Intersections, John Williams, uh, he's the director of Center for Racial Reconciliation at Fellowship Church in Monrovia, California, just outside of Pasadena. He's a lawyer, he's a shepherd, he's a soon-to-be author. I'm speaking that right now. I receive it. You all heard it, you all heard it. Hold him accountable, uh, but he's a friend. He's someone I've come to know in the last couple of years, last few years, and have great respect for him. Um, he influences me. I, I listen, I watch, I pay attention to what he's doing, whether he realizes it or not. I, I'm watching him. And so I'm, I'm honored to have John here today. Uh, John, you, you are doing some profound work. Um, let's just go ahead and say, say that. I want to use that word, profound work. Thank you. Um, tell us a little bit about what led you to do this work because uh, your background is law. Right. Right. Um, so it seems like there's quite a story behind your journey and that yeah. led you to this point. So can you tell us about how you got to this place to do this, the work that you do? Sure. Um, so so actually, I, I started in doing this work, then went to law, then came back into this work. And so back in 1986, um, before the summer of 1986, I was living in New Jersey. That's where I grew up. Um, in uh, Willingboro, New Jersey. And um, uh, I came out after I met Dr. John Perkins at, he spoke at uh, a friend of mine's church uh, in New Jersey. And I was just blown away by just the, um, I had never heard anybody talk about race the way that Dr. Perkins talked about race. I had never heard anybody talk about race, honestly, uh, in a mixed crowd, you know, ethnically or racially mixed crowd of people uh, the way that he did. And, and be, as a result of that, I, I sought him out. And a month later, uh, we had a conversation in Philadelphia. And then two months after that, I found myself on a plane um, <laughs> headed to Northwest Pasadena to work with Dr. Perkins uh, at the Harambe Christian Family Center. And so I worked uh, at Harambe for uh, three and a half years, like full time. And then um, after that, I went back to school and uh, to finish my undergrad and get my law degree. But then in between the summers, I'd come back and run their, their youth programs uh, during the summertime. So I, I was there three years and six summers. After I got out of law school, my wife and I, by that time I was married, uh, my wife and I decided to move back into, uh, move down the street from Harambe. We're really committed to the Northwest Pasadena area. And for those who don't know, about Northwest Pasadena, I know that the, you know, kind of this, the the way that people frame up Pasadena is, you know, the Rose Parade, um, yeah. the Rose Bowl and all of that. But there's a pocket in Pasadena called Northwest Pasadena, 
which um, many African Americans and Latinx folks live. Uh, it's more impoverished area. And so my wife and I decided to settle there and uh, we raised our kids in Northwest Pasadena for most of their, uh, their, their uh, youth. And um, so, so for me, this notion of reconciliation has been, you know, ingrained in me. I was a young adult when I moved out here. And so I've been trying to walk this journey and live out this journey for over 30 years now. And so after, um, after I finished law school, we stayed in the neighborhood um, and I practiced law. I worked at the big firms and then had my own practice, but stayed, my law practice was actually in Northwest Pasadena as well. Um, but then after, um, the Trayvon Martin verdict, mm -hmm. uh, I felt compelled that I needed to actually walk away from the law and get back engaged full time uh, in doing this work. Wow. When I was practicing, my wife and I would live out kind of our own mission of reconciliation. We'd host things at our house over the years, um, but to really get back engaged in the conversation, um, uh, that was after Trayvon Martin. And I just realized that there needed to be a conversation in the church that wasn't happening. And I was seeing conversations on talk radio and now podcasts and, and in the news, but uh, the place that that conversation wasn't happening, or rather it was more of a one-way conversation where, where African-Americans and other marginalized folks were trying to have conversations with white folks and with white Christians. And that conversation wasn't really happening, at least in the circles that I was in. And so, so after a few years after Trayvon Martin, I started, after that, I started the process of, of transitioning out of practicing law and getting back engaged in uh, fighting for justice and, and having conversations and creating a table for everybody to, to be a part of and to have those conversations. Wow. I, I didn't know, um, I didn't know the details of that. And um, I think many people can, can, look back at that Trayvon Martin incident and the verdict. I remember the church I was at um, during that time when the verdict was coming out or came out and a lot of African-Americans, a diverse church, a lot of African-Americans were upset that nothing was being said. The conversation wasn't being had. That's right. And I was getting the emails and I was getting pulled over, <laughs> you know, after service or in between services or during the week, hey man, what, what's going on? And I tried to address it. I didn't have the language I have now, I didn't have the theology right. I have now, the understanding now. I would have the conversations behind the behind the scenes, one-on-one, right. on one. Right. Um, and it needed to be said from the pulpit too. So I, I tried to address it uh, or acknowledge it as best I could in a sermon. Uh, but you're right, the conversation uh, still, in my opinion, obviously it's, it's more, more so than back then years so. ago but still needs to be more of a conversation in the church and you're, yeah. you're starting that come you're, you're continuing you're you created a space for the conversation um tell us about the, the workshop because that's where i first um we we knew of each other and right. we connect we were connected on social media um and i kept hearing about the workshops quite a few friends of mine went to the workshops attended right i kept hearing about it and it's right up my alley, and I'm like, I'm gonna get to it. I'm gonna check it out one day. And uh, Susan Christopher um, yeah. told me she said, "You gotta come 
to one of the workshops. I'm like, okay, I'm there, I'm there. So we signed up and that's where we met in person and, and, and talked yeah. a bit. Um, but you, you're setting the table. You're, you're creating a space to have these uncomfortable um, conversations. Can you talk about how it was formed um, and how it was initially received? Yeah, but before I do that, I have to tell this very, very short story because this is connected with you. So, so I kept hearing about you as well, and it was through mutual friends, Bobby Harrison and Ness McBride, and, and some other folks from Fuller. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. they kept saying, "You got to meet this guy, Phil Allen. You got—he's so brilliant." And 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 Becky White, um, who I think I don't know if she was a classmate or a colleague, yeah. gave me one of your articles, and she kept saying, "This guy is really, really smart." And so I read your article. And then you came to the workshop and I, I have to, if I'm being honest, I was a little intimidated. <laughs> so let you what? <laughs> Well, first of all, you know, I pay them to say those things. <laughs> I, I have a, I have a most like salary. Like I, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. That's amazing. That's <laughs> so, 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 but in, in seriousness, I, I actually was intimidated uh, when you came, I, I, I was really honored that, that you were there. But uh, in terms of the workshops, we, um, when I came on staff at fellowship, which is almost five years ago, uh, Albert and I and executive team started talking about like what, how are we going to have this conversation? Uh, Fellowship is a multi-ethnic church. Um, every Sunday, someone, whoever's hosting says that we're, you know, multi-ethnic, intergenerational, gospel-centered church, and we exist to make disciples. That's a great catchphrase, but how do you actually do that? You yeah, know, yeah. and we understood it had to be more than just Black and white and Asian and indigenous folks and Latinx folks and are um, uh, it's just sitting next to each other. It had to be more than us worshiping together on a Sunday morning. And so, so um, we sat down and talked about it. And then Albert, um, you know, graciously said, I, "I trust you. I have a background. My undergrad degree is in African American studies, um, and so." So, so I understood history, and I also understood that if we're going to really have this conversation, um, a lot of this conversation has to be rooted in history. It can't just be rooted only in a very narrowly focused uh, interpretation of Scripture. And so, so our goal was to kind of broaden the interpretation of Scripture in terms of that, that Scripture does speak to oppressions, Scripture speaks to injustice, and while it doesn't you know, use the term racism. Uh, in the Old Testament, God was constantly telling people not to show favoritism. And that notion of favoritism wasn't just uh, a slight preference, but it was a type of preference that uh, advantaged one group of people and disadvantaged another group of people. And so, so we wanted to have kind of that theological lens and we wanted to have an understanding of history. And then we wanted to give a robust definition of racism. And so that it wasn't just um, individual racism. We had to talk about systemic racism. We had to talk about cultural racism, institutional racism. And so just kind of broadening uh, the concept of racism, because if we don't have a full conversation of what, of what racism is and what's behind racism, which is power, um, if we're not having that conversation, then we're going to fall short and, and we're only going to have this very surface understanding and this kind of kumbaya moment. And so, so the goal was to have that. And then not only that, but we also wanted to uh, help people to understand what's the manifestation of racism. Like how does racism impact not just people of color, 
But how does it uh, negatively impact white folks as well? How does it move all of us away from the Imago Day of who God called us to be individually and who God called us to be as people groups? And so, um, so we set about to uh, create uh, content around that. And, and we borrowed from uh, different folks who are already doing the work and we got permission to use different things from those who created it. But over time, we have, um, our content has changed. And in fact, I'm in the process of rewriting all of our content to add some new things and to add some new, some new thought. And we can get into that a little bit later, but generally that's, that's kind of what the workshop and the, how it was formed. How has it been received or at least initially? Cause I know it's, 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 uh, you know, um, loved, uh, people love it. People, uh, spread the word about it. Um, I hear, I still hear people talking about it. I have friends that are just now attending. Right. Um, but how was it initially received? Um, black folks, white folks, Asian, Latinx. Right. So, so honestly, what's funny, Phil, is that when I came on staff and, and my goal, I honestly had this as a goal. It's like, if I can get 35 to 50 people to come, mm -hmm. uh, to a workshop, that would be like a big win. And and so the first one we had, we actually sold out. Like we had over 125 people who wanted to attend. But part of that is a function of where we were and where we are as a country. And so just to kind of give a little backdrop, and I think people were seeking answers and wanting to, some folks are wanting to get into the conversation. So the backdrop is I came on staff during the last election cycle. And so um, the 2016 election cycle. And so, and so you had the election cycle uh, which was, which definitely was filled with some racial rhetoric. But then that summer, if you remember, Philando Castillo, uh, just a yep. different deaths and murders of unarmed black men and brown people uh, and, and black women. Um, and so people, I think, were hungry for a space to come in and have these conversations and not to just talk about... Um, Kind of current event topics but the goal our, our objective from the beginning has been we want people to understand the underpinnings of racism exactly and, and not just talk about colin kaepernick or or the flag or this what why is there such um contention around those issues and to go underneath to have those conversations and so by doing that um i think that's why a lot of people keep coming back and so since we've started, I, I, I know, because I'm a data guy, we, we've had over 2,000 folks who've participated in our workshops over the last four and a half years. Awesome. So, so it's been, generally, it's been, the feedback has been good. It's been really hard. Uh, I definitely get those emails. You're a pastor. You know those kind of emails that <laughs> people don't like yeah. what you said, and they're yeah. going to um, try to deconstruct what, what happened during the session. Uh, so I, I definitely get the pushback and we get some people who who just leave. And it's like, you know, in the middle of a workshop, they they sneak out and and, and their seats empty in the afternoon. And so <laughs> so that happens. So that definitely. Yeah. Happens. Yeah. yeah. You know, it only takes one email. You, you can right. get 20 <laughs> emails saying how amazing, how Im impactful it was. But we, we, we have a tendency that one email, right. one response and I don't know why that is. I don't know if it's a human thing, if it's a pastoral thing, if it's a leader thing. Um, but that one email impacts us, and and we right. want to. We wish we could 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 either reach that person. And sometimes you have to develop that thick skin. Not sometimes, 
all the time you have to have that thick skin to be able to uh to navigate around those to take them seriously there may be something in there we can learn from um but to still navigate around that and build upon the Mm -hmm. uh the, the the positive um ways that we've impacted people so i want to encourage you uh, I, I know i know those emails um man keep going um yeah. navigate around that uh, let our words echo and drown out those those comments um because what you're doing is is necessary thank you necessary yeah. um but how has covid um impacted the workshops have it has it because a lot of people say you know 2020 was so terrible so horrible it was so bad and i grieve while i grieve and lament our collective suffering absolutely and i mean i got friends right now battling COVID. right um i got families who have lost not in my ministry right praise god that we just ended but i have friends who've lost family members right but i tell people what 2020 did for me i need it Right. Just, just for me personally, it, it gave me the space and I, I've never been so productive and I've never felt so healthy. Yeah. Um, in all areas of my life. Yeah. It's just been it's been something that's beneficial for me. So I don't want to assume that it adversely affected the workshops, but has it? Um, and I have a follow up question to that. Sure. Sure. Uh, we, we definitely had to pivot because because my pri- prior to shelter in place, my my um Kind of my policy with the workshops because we had been asked to do them to put them online and to to do them and i was completely resistant to that um i, I felt that people um and just believe that people would have a better experience if you're in the room so to speak and um because because it, one it's easier to say things over a camera <laughs> than when someone's right next to you um but two there i, I think there's something um, almost magical or spiritual that happens when you're actually in the room uh, unpacking these issues and doing the exercises and having the conversations. So so we definitely had to pivot. Um, and, and we made a decision. Um, the, it, the first part of our pivot was we were actually going to start talking about some of the topical issues because they were right in front of our face. And so, so what we decided to do initially was to host uh, some webinars to talk about COVID-19 injustice. And that was kind of the, the overarching topic. Um, but then to go into asking or investigating the question, how, how what is COVID um, exposing in us? Because everybody was talking about this virus, expo- you know, we can't be exposed to the virus, but what was the virus exposing in us? Mm. And what the virus was exposing in us was anti-Asian American xenophobia what the virus was exposing in us was a complete disregard of uh, the prison population. Uh, What the virus exposed in us was our elders were not being, they were being impacted greatly and we needed to speak to that. Uh, And then obviously what the virus was exposing was the huge health disparity in black and brown communities. And so we, we, we decided to do a four part series on, on COVID injustice and talk about that. And then uh, moving forward, we um, we decided to we talked about and had to figure out how can we translate the workshops, the content of the workshops, to make them so that people don't get Zoom fatigue or screen fatigue. 
Um, how do we redesign our content and the way that we deliver our content so that we can do the workshops? And, and we did that ultimately. Um, and, and so in terms of the workshop, to answer your question directly, um, the, we, we, we've broadened them out in a way because before you, if you're in the room, that means you have to be close to us proximity wise. And so um, we've done workshops for folks all across the country. Uh, we've done pastor uh, where we, we decided to do workshops where it was just pastors because uh, as you know, with the, with the murders of Aubrey, Breonna Taylor, George Floyd, those three prominent ones, and we know there were others, um, a lot of folks and a lot of people in the church were just asking questions. And more specifically, a lot of white pastors were asking questions. And what do we do? How do we respond to this? And so we opened our workshops up to let's, let's invite whoever wants to come uh, across the country and let's host them over a series of days since it's just too hard to sit a full day looking you know, at a Zoom. Yeah. Uh, at a camera and a screen. So, so that's what we've done. And, and they've translated really well. Uh, um, I'm really pleased and, and actually going forward, whenever shelter in place stops, we'll probably do a combination of in-person and online. Oh, okay. So you will keep, uh, uh, you'll keep yeah. this to, to some degree. Yeah, for sure. You know, you, you talk about, I just wanted to speak to something you mentioned about what is the virus exposed in us? Right. I think that's a, a, an important question. Um, we don't all, often ask those types of questions. Right. We ask questions from our perspective outward. We don't always want to ask the questions that kind of point back to us. Absolutely. And one of the things that I just, it just blows my mind, the individualism. Yeah. Wow. That was exposed yes. or has been exposed in this country. Yeah. I, I have conversations sometimes with pastors who could not understand the need for the mask right. and social distancing. It right. was as if my individual personal freedom, now I'm oppressed. Yeah. And I'm trying to get them to understand, well, you know, you know, or they would say things like, well, I'm going to be healthy. I'm going to be okay. I should be able to go back to work. And I said, but how you feel about the virus impacting you yeah. really pales in comparison to you being a part of spreading the virus that will eventually kill somebody else. Right. Can you see that? Yeah. And people, and, and I think the Brookings Institute did a, a, a study that said the number one reason for the spread, the continued spread of the virus was individualism yep. in the U.S. Yeah. And so I, that, that's one of the things that stuck out to me the most in, um, but I still don't feel like people get it, especially churches. Right. I still don't feel like, like churches get it. Um, I don't know what else to, how else to word it or put it yeah. um, for them to get it. Yeah. Can I, can I, can I comment on that? Um, yes. Because, because so, so what happened, I, I wholeheartedly agree with you. Um, and, and, and I know you track this because we have, we've had conversations through the pandemic uh, periodically where, um, what, when, when George Floyd was murdered and that was filmed and that film became public and there's this national and international outcry of, of, okay, something has to be done. There really is, there really is racism. Still not, some folks still not sure if it's systemic, but there's something wrong. Um, I, I, and I think we had this conversation 
I remember us talking about, I'm going to give it six to eight weeks before the backlash comes, N- not necessarily outside of the church, but within the church. Yeah. That there's yeah. going to be, and that backlash is going to be fierce. It's not just going to be like, well, not kind of a questioning or kind of gaslighting. It's going to come back strong. And, and, and that's what happened with, yeah. with critical race theory, um, with uh, a cultural, I, I think this mask issue has been, in my opinion, a ruse uh, and a pretext to not having to talk about real injustice and racial injustice. And so if we can talk about critical race theory, if we can talk about this is infringement on my personal individual rights, um, then I don't have to talk about systemic racism. I don't have to talk about systemic police brutality. And, and so I think this whole mask thing and, and, and conflating it with individual rights is really about a, an avoidance of talking about race and a desire, this strong desire to be presumed innocent when it comes to issues of race that I don't have as a white person, I don't have any complicity in this. And so, yeah. so, so yeah, so I just wanted, as you were talking that, that kind of reminded me back on the, com- on the conversations that we've had in the past on that. Absolutely. Absolutely. Now, now just moving not too much further past um, COVID, but during the summer, you mentioned the the, the prominent um, videos and, and, and with Breonna Taylor, it wasn't video, but with her murder, um, given your influence and your voice and the work that you do, did you feel a sense, a heightened sense of responsibility following those murders and the protests? Um, and if so, what that feel like and what has been your response? Yes, I, 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 I did. And the responsibility that heightened sense, Phil, was, was more of we've, I've been, at the time, had been doing the work for about four years. I'd been equipping other people to do this work and having conversations. And, and last year, actually, one of the goals that I had was to really train a, a group of about 20 folks to take them deeper than even the workshops, but to really teach them how to have these conversations and, and how to do this. And so, so, so for me, it was that sense of we were prepared. And so I could, I could in some sense, unleash those people to, to join in and to create spaces for people to have conversations. And so we had launched what we call our table talks. Um, And we can get into talking about that a, a little bit later, but that sense of, responsibility absolutely i'm one that doesn't necessarily um like do video post things on social media um i'm more of a but even though i'm upfront a lot of times my general personality is to be behind the scenes but that was the first time i actually posted a video where i recorded something and i felt compelled to uh to to speak out about what was going on and and more importantly compelled to, to tell my white brothers and sisters, you need to feel the anger that African-Americans and that brown folks are feeling. And don't be afraid of that anger. And that anger is that there's nothing wrong with that anger. Uh, it's biblical, it's righteous anger. And, and if you live in these kinds of communities where that type of, um, those type of atrocities are allowed to happen and you don't say anything, you, you need to step up and do something. It's more than just posting something on Facebook or on social media. 
you, you need to actually actively get engaged. And so, so I did like this 10 or 15 minute video post and, and, and I honestly was thinking, you know, a hundred people, right. You know, will respond and, and it went quasi viral, you know, and so, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. which is a weird feeling all completely separate from this, but, but yeah, that was kind of my sense of the heightened responsibility. And that was my response. Wow. Wow. Um, where do I want to go from there? Cause you, you've said so much, man. Uh, and I wanted to respond to something that you said, I'll, I'll probably come, come back to it. Okay. Um, what keeps you going? Cause to be honest with you, there are times when, when you just going back to what you said about here, here's what I did. Here's what I want to say before I, before I ask that question, yeah. you mentioned that our white brothers and sisters need to, to feel the anger. Right. And I want to, I want to kind of add to that another emotion that tends to be avoided and that's grief. Yes. And I'm, I'm, a, I'm, I'm not a therapist, but I, I wonder if it's a protect, a a mechanism to protect themselves, a hardening. Yeah. Um, or is it just inability to grieve yeah. for some, for many, um, or an unwillingness? Because whenever I've talked, had these conversations, and I've had these conversations with, uh, on a Zoom with predominantly white pastors, right. evangelical conservative pastors, mm -hmm. um, and, and oftentimes, one of the questions I will, get, I will get before even going on is, can I speak to them in a way that, you know, that they're checking to see, am I going to say it right? Yeah. yeah. So that I don't cause certain feelings. Right. And I'm trying to get people to understand they need to feel that. Right. It's not me making them, trying to make them angry or make them guilty or make them feel bad, but they need to, to lament, to yeah. grieve with their brothers and sisters of color. Yeah. Like they, people need to, I get angry when I, every time I hear China virus. Right. Because I know what's, what's behind that. Right. Right. And I think that's one of the things or two of the things, the anger and the grief that are missing. And so how do you keep going when you feel like you have to, or if you feel like you have to say the same things over and over again, having the same conversations, um, how do you keep going with so much resistance? And it seems like so much regression in our society when it comes to race relations. Um, how do you remain steadfast? I, I think um, there's a couple things that I do. One, um, unplugging from all of it, you know, just to kind of recharge. I think that's, that's critical. Um, so going out doing, I mean, we're limited in terms of our mobility and where we can go, but, but just disengaging from the process so that my body, uh, so that I can take care of my body so that I can take care of my soul and my mind and my spirit. So, so I think that's, that's one thing. Um, and a part of that is exactly what you were just talking about this this whole um notion of grief uh, of just I, I we're taught in this country generally and i know it's more of a, a western european thing and a, a white american thing to not show emotion but but uh we've 
we've taken that on as as black folks and people of color like it's i have to kind of keep that stiff upper lip i've feel i've moved completely away from that and so yeah. I, I will cry at a drop of a hat and, and, I, and i don't care at this point where i start crying like it can be in public it can be privately it can Good. be in front of my family um and and i'll tell people if it's public it's like don't don't comfort me I just need to allow this to pass through my body. I need, this is good. I need to feel these emotions. Um, it, don't feel bad. Don't. It's not an awkward moment. Uh, in fact, if you want to join me, <laughs> you know, yeah. come, come join me. But but that's the uh, one of the best things that I've done this season is is allowed myself to feel like to deeply feel things. And so if I'm sad, I'm deeply sad. If I'm if I'm happy or joyful, I'm deeply happy and joyful. And so that's been a big, um, a big thing. And, and then the third thing is just being honest. Like there are just days that I don't want to get up out of bed because I am either grieving or just mournful or frustrated or angry, um, tired. You know, um, when you came to the workshop, it was one of the first times that we started using what we call our emotions chart. Like we literally put a chart up on the screen and put it, we now have it in our workbooks. Um, as we're having these hard conversations about race, having that chart of, of 60 to 80 uh, different emotional descriptions and asking people during different pieces, points of time, what are you feeling right now? Not in your head, what is your body actually feeling? And so yeah. So I, I revert to that emotions chart myself. That's part of my own soul care uh, and process to, so that I can get back up again, get back in front of people, come back to the table, um, energized and refreshed uh, to continue to have the hard conversations. That's good, man. That's so good. Uh, you know, and that's necessary because there are a lot of people out there that um, they're tired. Right. They, you know, someone during the summer, someone had reached out to me. I hadn't heard from them in years, young pastor. And he reached out and asked me, he said, you know, if you ever need to some, need a space to share your story, I'm here to listen. Wow. I never responded. Right. <laughs> because <laughs> my, cause I would have, I would have gone in. Cause I was, I was on 10 emotionally at the right, time. Right. And I said, well, one, I don't need the space to share my story. I always share my story. Right. That's right. <laughs> but I'm tired of sharing my story for, for people who just want to hear the story. Reach out to me when you want to be a part of activism. When you want to be a part of change, when you want to move beyond the, the conversation, which I want to come back to that um, table talks. Yes. Because like I was saying, this person wanted to give me a space to share my story, to have a talk. But I, you know, I didn't have a problem. I, I don't have a problem sharing my story. I share my story all the time. Right. But I wanted to set a table. I want to set the table and invite him to exactly. the table rather than him setting it and determining what's you know what's going on enough to understand that that was his intentions but that's oh. i think that's what he was used to right no i want to set the table that that where you would come and i give you the space to listen to learn and then be moved beyond conversation yeah so with that and with that that led me to want to 
move towards the table talks you were talking about. Because um, in my book, Open Wounds, I talk a little bit about the table, yeah, you inviting people to the table, yeah. um, both in our families, and I give some examples of, of, of how that, that works, but also in our communities, Yeah, right? In, in distinct communities, but also trend across yep. racial lines yep. coming to the table. Yeah. So talk to us a little bit about the, 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 the table talks um, and, and how that was formed, why you added that to, to the work that you do. Sure. It, it was uh, it was multifaceted on, on why we formed them. Uh, so going back to the summer, shortly after George Floyd, we have this international kind of outcry, this international response. Um, there were more protests all across this country and in neighborhoods that had never seen those kinds of movements than ever before in our country's history and in the world's history. And so, um, so with that, there were a lot of people who were responding on social media. Um, a lot of white folks were saying, okay, I see something, help me to understand. And it was almost like what your friend did uh, by calling you and saying, hey, th th but they were framing it in a weird way. Hey, um, if you need to talk, I'm here to listen. And what they're really saying is, I need to learn and I don't know how to ask you to teach me something not with, and to teach me something without you having being required automatically to tap into your pain. And so, so, so for me, there, that was part of it. And then some of the responses that I was seeing online in terms of some folks just saying, um, go do your own homework. And, and, and I get that sentiment. I totally get that sentiment. But it had reminded me of when I was in uh, in high school, in geometry class in particular, struggling with geometry. And I was doing the homework. I was doing everything, but I still was failing. Um, went to my teacher and said, hey, um, I, I need help. And his response was, well, if you do your homework, um, you'll get better at it. Well, I was doing my homework, but I was doing the wrong homework. And so just telling people to go do their homework without yes. more they can get wrong and incorrect information or, or worse, harmful information. And so for me, that inspired us um, to come up with what we call these virtual tables and to have, and we call them table talks. And so uh, that, that group of 20 folks that I told you about that I was trying to disciple during the year, they were the first folks that I called to say, hey, I wanna, I wanna um, invite you into an opportunity to host these table talks. And there are other folks I had been working with. And so we ended up having uh, 25 different tables, virtual tables, where people could uh, register and sign up and come to have conversations around either a book or someone's curriculum or videos or, or podcasts. But all of it was going to be around the issues of race. And so there were some tables that were only for white people. There were some tables that were only for white women. There were some tables that were only for women of color. There were tables that were for mixed groups. Um, we had an Asian American table. Um, and, and so we had a high school table and we had a middle school table. And so anybody who wanted to participate in coming to the table to have a conversation, they were invited to register and to join one, one or more of our tables. And we ended up having almost 500 folks who signed up to participate in our table talks. And so, um, we're, we're going to actually do them again at the end of January, uh, all the way through uh, Black History Month. And so 
and the topics of the tables were just as varied. And so um, we had uh, a table on Austin Channing Brown's book, and that was for women of color. And it was just a, a great experience. We had a table on on the TV show, The Underground, that talked about resistance. It was it, the title of the table was Biblical Resistance. Um, and, and so there was a biblical framework of why slave revolts and 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 enslaved people running away from plantations was actually theologically sound and so we had all sorts of tables movie tables and so um but the bigger goal phil was for people to be able to come and to listen and to learn um and it was a space for people to have conversations and so some of the exercises that some of the tables had was to do this poem that's called the i am poem where everybody no matter whether you're white or or Asian or Latinx or black uh, to talk about what is your racial formation journey. And it was done through the kind of this, this, this format that we gave people. And some of the most amazing poems were written um, in response to that because people had been, um, they, they allowed themselves to sit in that tension at that table. Cause sometimes tables are uncomfortable. You know, we think of Thanksgiving or Christmas at some families, you know, uh, some people drink before they go to, <laughs> to get at that table. Um, so it was tense, but, but yeah. And so, and, and there are some people who left the table. So, so again, there are people who came assuming that it was going to be one thing, didn't like what they were hearing. And, and they decided that this table is not for me. So, yeah. Wow. You know, when you, when you talk about the table, it, I immediately go to the Eucharist. Yeah communion yeah um i looked on the website and i and i was looking at um table talks and there's the mentioning of coming back to the broken body and blood of jesus That's right and um in, in my book i also kind of frame this table as a theological reflection around communion right and how it's important to understand um what was going on at that at that table there there's a humility you you can't approach that table without humility. Yeah, um, all hierarchy was broken down right. at that table. Um, it was safe, and it was so safe. It was safe enough for Judas to even betray Jesus. Mm. I hadn't even thought about that. That's a good point. That's a really good point. Jesus didn't. He could have tried to talk him out of it. Right. He could have shamed him. He could have, you know, knowing my personality. I probably would have said something. To, <laughs> I probably would have, you know, been, you know, condescending or passive aggressive to let him know. I know. Right. And then even out him a little bit. Right. Because who wants to go and be crucified? Right. 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 But it was so safe. Jesus made it so safe that he allowed him to to he still was able to make his own decision. Yeah. I don't know. You know, I'm just processing that. Yeah. And how Jesus handled that, because, you know, dipping the the bread in the oil and, and giving it to him. Uh, my understanding is, is, is actually an, an act of honor. Right. To share that bread with him. This is the man that he knew was about to go betray him. Yeah. And so there's so much happening at the table, um, even though. Judas went ahead and, and betrayed Jesus, and, and we know what happened after that. Uh, and we understand that that was, um, God used that scenario for the salvation of the world. 
but it was still something like you said you said magical or spiritual about being at the table right right um, and I think that actually should be central to that should be a part of a of, of how, part of our liturgy our personal liturgy yeah. uh, as a family as um, there, there's something that happens when you sit at the table and break bread and eat when you go to a cafe and you sit down and you just you may have a muffin or bread or something you have your coffee your tea and you break bread there's something that happens that's why going back to what you said about not wanting to do the the virtual right and and and, and wanting to be in person because there that that's something that's built into uh, some would say the universe that god built this into the universe this is in our social dna yeah and so we need to tap into that that needs to be a, a central part of um how we go about the like next steps how do we move towards change i think the table and what you're doing has to be central um to that yeah so i will be i will be borrowing the table talks please please, please do concept yeah <laughs> and i and i want to add to what you're saying about the table so so jesus i feel like jesus gave us um kind of a precursor of that of, in terms of him and judas because if you go to john 6 and I've been really looking at John 6 during this time where Jesus is talking about, he's telling who his identity is, who he is. He says, I'm the bread of life. He says it three or more times. Mm -hmm. And you get to John 6, 60, 59 or six around there. And he tells them who he is. And, and, and it says, Jesus perceived that there were some that were murmuring among him. And then Jesus said, um, he, he talks about that there were some who walked away and left. Yes. And he understood that. And so in the same way that he did not, he gave Judas, that table was free enough for people to walk away from. He gave yeah. kind of a precursor of that in John six by saying, you know, after hearing these words, many walked away and there's nothing in scripture where it says he, and he, and therefore he chased after them. Yes. He stayed yes. with those who stayed with him. Yes. Yeah. And that's important to know. Right. That's important. And, and, and now, now, now when you say that, that needs to be something my white colleagues, pastors need to understand. Yep. Because part of why many do not have this conversation is because they're concerned about the ones who will walk away. That's right. That's right. And I will have no problem saying, number one, many have to keep the machine going. Yeah. <laughs> That's a real. Building the, the, the machine of the church, especially oh, the mega church. Right? Yeah. And then the status. Yeah. Well, we're at X amount of thousands. We can't drop. So all these things are at play. Yeah. And and many can't let go of that stuff to have the conversation so they can find themselves as Christ in John 6. Right. Where many walked away. Yeah. And, he, and in turn to look at the ones who stayed and say, will you, will you not leave me too? That's right. That's right. He gave them an invitation <laughs> to leave as well. But, but he did not change his identity. He did not... Uh, soften, you know, kind of telling them who he was and what he was about and that he was about his father's business and he was about the kingdom. And I think that's the kind of um, internal fortitude and character that in, in this conversation that we need to have. And while there are definitely days where, like I said, I don't want to get out of bed, um, yet something pulls me out of bed, you know, and and, yeah. and to have another conversation and to and, and to do the things that are necessary to fight against injustice. Amen, amen, yeah. amen. Um, tell us a little bit about the, the, the 
one thing that I, I can't wait to be a part of. I know you're going to do it this year and, and we got shelter in place, man. <laughs> yeah, I was ready. I was ready. I, I already talked to my uh, the, the ministry that I just um, I was leading on your faith to see if we can get some people to, to join you all. And I'm hoping whenever the next one is, I, I want to be a part of the civil rights tour, um, both locally and and in the South. Can you talk a little bit about uh, what inspired you to do that? Uh, tell us about, a little bit about the tour and the various tours that you do. Right, right. Well, what, what inspired us before I came on staff, there was uh, another person who was on staff who actually led, they kind of did a beta test for the civil rights tour. And there's 10 folks that went and I and my wife were fortunate enough to go and to participate in it. And so when I came on staff, that was something for me that this has to be one of the pillars of our center that we take these annual tours to go through. So we have three of them now. One is the Southern Civil Rights Tour where we go uh, to seven cities and five states uh, over a period of eight days. And so uh, the purpose of it is Brian Stevenson talks about that. He, he talks about this whole concept of getting proximate. Um, and while he talks about getting proximate with the problem, for me, I've, I've modified that a, a bit that I, I firmly believe that we have to become proximate with history and we have to become proximate with accurate history, not just exceptionalism. We have to be, become proximate with the good, the bad, and the ugly. Yeah. And so, um, so, so for us, the whole purpose of going on the Southern Civil Rights Tour or any of our tours is to learn what's the racial history, because that history will give us context and will inform the way that we do, uh, the way that we share the gospel, the way that we, and the way that we make disciples. And, and, and that's always at play. When we're talking with people, especially in a cross-cultural setting, that underlying issue of racialization uh, in the historical racialization of our country is always at play because it's a power dynamic. And so if it's a, if it's someone white who's sharing the gospel with a person of color, there's a power dynamic. And if it's a person of color sharing the gospel with somebody who's white, um, there's a, there's a power dynamic that goes on with that as well. And so for us, it's really important to understand what's the racial history of our country. And so because the South is so, um, so, you know, just, historically like had been the hotbed of because that's where slavery was um uh, because of that we go to the south now over the years what we've done is like say hey wait a minute there are other histories that need to be taught and there are racial histories in every single town every single city uh every single district in our country and so it's important for us as the local church to understand what's the racial history in the neighborhood that we are doing church, that we're having services. And so for us, in addition to the Southern Civil Rights Tour, we do what we call the uh, Pasadena Civil Rights Excursion, where we take a full day, seven to seven, seven in the morning, seven at night, and look at different parts of the city of Pasadena, actually going to different places where racial history happened um, and having conversations about it. And so for our, um, our Pasadena one, we had, uh, we, and when we talk about history, we have to talk about all of it. So before there was a United States, there were indigenous folks who lived here. And so looking at what was the indigenous history and then going forward uh, in terms of how history has evolved and how we do life here in, in these different spaces, how evolved. And so we have the Pasadena excursion, the Southern Civil Rights uh, 
uh, tour. And then finally, uh, a year and a half ago, we did an Asian American civil rights tour where we uh, flew up to the Bay Area, started at Angel Island, which is the equivalent of Ellis Island. But Angel Island significant because that's where many Asian folks came from when they when they immigrated to this country. And so we start there and we go down the state of California to different ethnic Asian enclaves and have those folks talk to us to teach us about the intersection of, of Korean Americans or Japanese Americans or Southeast Asians of the faith and their, their position at the table of reconciliation. And so, so often when we think of racial reconciliation, we only see it through a binary lens of black and white, but, but everyone has been impacted by systemic racism. And so, and everyone needs to have their story told and to be located in that story. And so, so we do the Asian American civil rights tour as well. Wow. Yeah. I, I want to be a part of all, all of those. Um, I, I want to be a, le a learner, continue to be a learner, a student. Uh, I love history and I couldn't agree with you more that one of the things I believe our shortcomings, um, um, are, or our shortcoming is, is that we don't, um, we don't know how we got here. Right. We, you know, this summer when people would say things like, uh, you know, let's do this and let's do that and we're going to eradicate racism, end racism, you know, and I, I, I posted a video uh, as well mm -hmm. and I talked about you have 400 years of black history. Yeah. That's not even including native right. experience with racism. Right. But we got centuries, and you think because now you you feel some emotions that you're going to eradicate racism. You have the answers in the next few months, and it's going to be gone. Like this is a long journey, right? Right. And one of the things I would always talk. I had many conversations, many private messages. They don't have them as much anymore, <laughs> but I have them, and I tell them. Read read this book that gives you some background. Yeah. Watch this film. It gives you some background. My book, my film and my book was about giving context and background right. to how we got here. And we haven't even talked about the trauma. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> that we carry in our bodies. And I think you recommended My Grandmother's Hands. Yeah. And then Elaine Miller-Karras, she uh, affirmed that book as well. And so I've been reading that book since we've talked and um, the, the, the trauma that our bodies carry intergenerationally. Yes. Which people don't realize may, plays a significant part in our response as black people when we are pulled over, when we're handcuffed. And you think, why didn't they respond this way? Well, there's a physiological response as well. There's some things that's happening in our brains, our, how our brains are wired. Yeah. That's that intersection of um, uh, neuroscience and trauma. Right. And so those are all things that, that, that play into this. And so the work that I think that you're doing, have you ever heard the term critical race theology? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Because that's what I believe that, that you're doing. Mm. I believe you're doing that type of work. And I, I want to continue to do research on that and, and, and hopefully be a voice in that as well, because people so are, are so afraid of critical race theory. Right. Okay. Let's give you a critical race theology. Right. <laughs> exactly. Right. Let's exactly. go there. Yeah. You know, 
people don't understand, and we talked about this earlier, the sundown towns. Yeah. There are more sundown towns in California. Over 120. Than there are where I'm from in South Carolina. In my crazy? hometown. Yeah, my hometown is considered one. Right. Can you talk, tell us a little bit about what a sundown town is? Yeah. So so when we think of just race, and, and you've heard me say a couple of times the issue of power, that when we talk about race, really, it's a it's it's really about power and who holds power and, and therefore who gets to dictate things and who gets to say where one can go and where one cannot go. And so sundown towns were towns all across the country, all across the United States, where uh, black people and other people of color had to be out of that town if they were even allowed in it at all during the daytime, but they had to be out of that town by the time the sun came down or went down. And so, uh, again, when we think about issues of race, we put it in, we, we so often put it in a binary of good and bad. If you're racist, you're bad. If you're not racist, you know, you're good. And we don't think about all the individual acts that we do to create segregated communities. And then on top of what we have on the laws that are written on the books, we have cultural laws that uh, in terms of how we are to engage with one another. And so when we think about the South, we say the South is bad, they were really racist. And we think about the North or the West and we say, oh no, they were progressive um, because it, there was no slavery in those places, but they were, they, they, they were just as segregated as the South. They were just as oppressive uh, as the South was. And so sundown towns were those, those towns where we had to be out of those towns before the sun went down. And so, and again, it's about power and it's about controlling people's agency and, and controlling one's ability to fully express who they are through work, through creativity, through um, spirituality, uh, through all forms. And so it's the equivalent of segregated churches except for it's residential and it's dealing with space. <clears throat> you, you know, you talk about the sundown towns, two things. My grandfather used to always say this, and I know a lot of black folks have gotten this. Make sure you're home yep. when the lights come on, when the street lights come on. Street lights come on. And I, never, I just thought it was just a curfew. That was like a marker for a curfew. Right. But my grandfather was very serious about it. That's right. To the point where if we weren't in the yard, because yeah. as I got a little bit older, as long I had, he said, you better have at least one foot in, the, in this, in this front yard <laughs> and, and clock like clockwork. He would come to that door right. and he would be looking for us by the time the sun went down. Yeah. I never understood why that was so, so was such a big deal for him until I understood sundown towns. Exactly. And I was an adult, we thought like recent years. Right. That I understood because of the trauma that he carried. Right. He couldn't imagine his preteen son being down the street playing when the sun went down. That's right. He needed to see us. As an issue of safety. Because of what they experienced. Yeah. And people think this you say you use the term the South is bad, the North and the West are good. I've experienced more bigotry yep. in California, in Southern California, yep. than anywhere else, any time, any other point in the South when I lived in the South. Yeah. And people don't understand that. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> Two questions. Sure. How have you grown or changed 
from the work that you do. And then after that, where do we go from here? After the conversations, after all this happened in 2020, where do we go from here? But first, how has the work that you do changed, impacted, grown you? I, I think the first thing is it's sharpened me. So having to do this work full time, where before it was during my free time that I would do it. Um, but for this to actually be, you know, my paid gig, um, doing it day in, day out, the first thing that it's done is just really sharpened me. Uh, and it's sharpened me in the way of, of, of uh, being able to understand arguments that are going to come from people who are giving some sort of resistance or, or, or some uncertainty. It's helped me to better disciple people when it, in the context of race uh, and faith. Um, I, I think, um, but it's also, I've, I feel like Phil, I've grown a lot in terms of the deeper understanding of what, of what reconciliation is, of what true justice is or harmony or however you want to frame that. Um, because I think a lot of the conversations, and this is both inside the church and outside the church, only focuses or primarily focuses on individual acts and individual racism. And so when you're having conversations, um, even if you're talking about systems, it ultimately, it ultimately devolves back into individuals. And so for me, the growth has been, is, has been the discipline, how I've had to discipline myself to keep people on task and on focus and looking at, and looking at systems and institutions and how those things impact us far more than the individual acts, because I can be innocent because I have pleasant thoughts towards someone who's different than me. Um, but it's far more problematic if I talk about how am I spending my money? It's far more problematic if I'm talking about how do we really undo oppression, uh, racial oppression. And, and so, so that's been some of the biggest things that I've learned. And I've actually, and we talked about this before we came on, I'm working on changing some of the curriculum and content uh, that we use in our trainings and workshops to 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 really double down on that. Um, number one, to keep I think it's it's critical for us when we have these conversations to hold people's feet to the fire. Um, that when you're uncomfortable, it's okay to be to experience that discomfort, but you're gonna you need to stay in here. And it's more than just even coming to a workshop, a full day workshop or a two day workshop. It's what are you going to do? when you leave this place, what, and I started asking the question, what's your next faithful step in the next 10 days, the next 10 weeks and next 10 months. And to start to teach people how to understand that this is not just something that you check the box and you've done it. And so you can go forward and continue on, but where you really start to turn the lens on your choices that have to deal with race, on your, your choices, your actions, your behavior, your attitudes, that you really start to think about those things. What are the things that you're reading? What are you, what are you looking at on TV? Who are the theologians, if it's a Christian context, who are the theologians that you're reading? Are you just reading white men? Uh, well, you need to expand that. And so, yeah. so for me personally, what I've done in 20, when I did mostly in 2020 was read books from female theologians and primarily black theologians, black female theologians. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. Well, that's our time, man. Um, we could do this for another hour. Yeah, <laughs> we could do this for another hour. I love 
having these conversations with you. Uh, I'm a, I learn from you. Um, I, I have notes, not just for the show, but for myself. Um, I have ideas from this conversation from my own work. Yeah. Um, I, I hope that we can do this again. Yeah, at absolutely. some point, Fun. um, have another conversation. Um, but I'd love to have you back on. I, I think your voice, and I've said this to other people, your voice is an important voice for mm. such a time as this. Thank you. Um, I, I think you, you can speak to any, any group. Um, doesn't matter how many people walk out. There are going to be many that stay. Yeah. I can, you can be certain of that. There are going to be many that stay and many that learn and many that grow. And we're going to look back on this time of, of, of the work that you and others are doing. And we're going to be grateful. Thank you. We're going to be grateful that you put the time in and that you, and that you're doing the work. Yeah. So John Williams, thank you, my brother. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. Yes. Yes. All right. We'll talk soon. Okay. Sounds good, man. If you want to stay connected to John, you can follow him on Facebook at John Williams. And if by chance you get many John Williams in the search that often happens when you're searching for someone, uh, you can go to my Facebook page, Phil Allen Jr., and search his name in my friends list. You can also follow him on Instagram at Prof J Dub, P-R-O-F-J-A-Y-D-U-B, Prof J Dub. And don't forget to pre-order my book, Open Wounds, on Amazon today. The book will be released on February 9th. I'm excited, and I believe you will not be disappointed. Once again, I want to thank you for listening and parking with me at the intersections.